Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Hollywood Breaks. This week, Tim's on vacation, so our favorite guest host, Robin Geisen, joins me, and we talk about Shazam, layoffs, and comic book fatigue. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Hollywood Breaks. So, Robin, the other day I was thinking, um, we've worked on a lot of comic book movies, you and I. I was thinking about this the other day, and, you know, we worked on, what, how many X-Men? Three or four X-Men, maybe? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm kind of thinking back to that those days and it's just you know the campaigns and what the struggle they were and um but when it came to like Days of Future Past and one that just like knocked it out of the park and everyone felt like we'd finally gotten it right and the movie did well, the campaign rocked and just everyone seemed happy and it and it was just it was it, it it's such an interesting counter, uh, contrast to what's happening now with with Shazam, you know, and so, you know, I know you have your thoughts and I, I, I love to get to those, but it's just interesting to me that, you know, if we kind of look back, just to kind of give our audience sort of a background here. So the first one made somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million first on opening o- weekend. Yeah. On opening weekend. Um, a little bad, but yeah. Yeah. Which is not bad. I mean, considering Shazam's a minor character and, um, but it got reasonably good reviews in the 90s um 90 percentile and the cinema score was relatively decent i think it was an a minus or something like that which is pretty good um and then we come to the second one and 30 million dollars which is pretty bad (laughs) and reviews are are middling at best and it doesn't look like it's going to have much legs now what do you, I mean, I, I think I have my thoughts, but I kind of want to go to you first. Like, what do you feel like what went wrong with this one? Um, was it a campaign issue? Do you feel like the audience, I mean, I think this is going to delve into a larger conversation about superhero fatigue and comic book fatigue, but we'll get to that. But just sort of off the bat, what, what do you think really is attributed to this, this huge drop? Cause you, typically you see like what happened, something like with Creed three, where, you just you you it grows because the audience wants to see more stories that's what you love to see but when you see this kind of dip that's not a positive sign no it's not it's it's very disappointing um look i think there's i never think it opens or doesn't open for one particular reason i think it's always uh, you know there's a lot of reasons that go into it um first and foremost you know your your relationship with your consumer is your most important currency Right. Mm. And I think that that was completely missed, both from a production standpoint, a rollout standpoint, a marketing standpoint. They forgot who the audience was for Shazam. Um, The first Shazam was really good. And by the way, I didn't see it in theaters either, but it was really fun. And and a lot when you think about who the audience for Shazam is, it's not the same audience for Wonder Woman. It's not the same audience for Justice League. It's slightly younger. It's the same audience as Jumanji, right? There's a very big distinction. And I think that that's special. There's something to that. Um, And I actually think that neither one of the marketing campaigns truly got it for the first Shazam or the second one. I think the first one, they were trying to figure it out. The movie ended up being its best advocate in the end um, because it opened to 50 something, which wasn't amazing, but it also 
when you look at like to what Jumanji opened to, it was the same kind of numbers. And it kind of makes sense when you look at like, oh, the parallels in terms of who the audience is for this movie. Um, you know, it's kind of like a superhero movie for littles as they're coming into the world of of DC and the world of Marvel. It's very fun. It's poppy. And um, there's something to that. And that to me, uh, that kind of charm is the heart of that franchise. Now that heart was not beating on this campaign yeah. at all. And, um, or, you know, it, in any of it, any ounce of it, I don't, I think that they were around every turn. I mean, look, coming out of COVID, it's a very different time at the movie theaters too. So it's about finding an event and, and, uh, everything. And how do you find an event in this movie? But I think that they missed the mark, um, from a marketing standpoint too, every, from every trailer to every TV spot, every digital spot to the print. Um, and, and I can, I, I gave you guys some print. We can pull up and look at it. Yeah. it yeah, yeah, we pull it out right now. Um, what I'm talking about. So this was the very first Shazam. And this is the very first poster, which I think was a really brilliant poster if you look at it, because you can see it tells you immediately who he is. He's a kid. He's a kid who's turned into a superhero. He's blowing a bubble and he's looking at his phone. He doesn't care about being a superhero. It tells you everything you need to know about, you know, what kind of humor, what kind of comedy, what you're going to get out of this film, right? Like yep. the juxtaposition. It's a very smart poster now let's look at the one for the second shazam which he doesn't look like a kid there he looks like superman to me he looks like uh you know uh and so do all of his brothers and sisters which we know from the first spoiler alert if you haven't seen it also turns <laughs> with him but like yeah. there's a fun little catch line you know the tagline oh my gods that's cute but that is the only nod to what yep. this franchise actually stands for. Um, and actually, it looks a lot like Black Adam. Let's go to the next poster. I mean, it's the same. It, it, it's probably the same vendor. It's the same thing. Like, it is not unique in itself. Right. They tried to sell this as a Justice League or a Wonder Woman, and it is not those things. It's a standalone. Go back to the yep. original film that actually it's okay to be let's just be who you are and they never embraced it and audiences see through that and and we saw it in every ounce of the campaign i mean look they they started to um they brought in wonder woman uh in the which obviously was an easter egg in the movie but mm, when they brought yeah. her in in the marketing that's when you know you're in trouble that's when you know the tracking is four alarm fire <laughs> right so there's, there was a huge marketing opportunity that I think was completely missed um, across the entire campaign, that kind of nod to that charm and that, you know, young kind of fun mm -hmm. did not exist. There was one part in the trailer where he like looks at Helen Mirren, who's the villain in this movie, um, which is another kind of problem in itself because she looks like grandma to kids, right? Like she looks like yeah. a lovely, nice little grandma. She's not very menacing, <laughs> even though he makes a joke like, you look very menacing. Like, yeah, he makes a joke. You look very menacing. And it, that's cute. But the whole idea that the, the reason why this movie works is because not because he's this amazing superhero. It's because he's a kid who turns into a superhero. Right. That is the heart and soul of what this movie is. And that did not exist. So I'm not surprised that people didn't come out to see it. You can't fake it and cheat it and pretend that this is Justice League because audiences know that it's not. And then when you position it that way, 
um, audiences are, of course, including critics, are, of course, going to be disappointed because it doesn't deliver in that way because it never was going to. That's never who the audience was, ever. So um, I'm sad. I'm sad for them because I actually think that this was a really great franchise with super potential. Um, I think that this, you know, I actually think that Shazam would do even better now knowing, I mean, this is taking the step back and looking at the world as it is now. Uh, um, I think it would be better if it was made into a series and put on HBO, like finding a way to um, expand in that world that doesn't, yep. you know, there's, there's some potential. There's some potential here for that. Yeah. I would say, I, th I think you nailed a couple of really big things. One is, you know, t if Tim were here, he would probably 100% agree with me. They forgot the audience. You, you really have to, they have to, it has to start there. There has to be a why. And one of the big things about why you're making this movie is because the first one is success, yes, but also the audience enjoyed something that was a little different from all the other comic book movies that you've seen before. Um, I also thought a tagline on the first one was really great, just say the word. It just sort of like really encapsulated what the movie is, his posture with the bubble gum, looking at his phone. I mean, just it imbibed that whole, like, this is not a typical superhero movie. Yeah. And I, it seems like, it's interesting to me, I, I don't know if they were under, because I know uh, Josh Goldstein is running um, Warner Brothers Marketing now. I don't know if he was running Warner Brothers Marketing on the first one. He might have been. I'm not no, entirely sure. He wasn't there yet. Yeah, he wasn't there yet. So two totally different styles of looking at it. And it's interesting to me, like, why they chose to go this direction. Now, we all know that DC is having all these struggles in terms of now you have Peter Safran and James Gunn who are running the show now. They're obviously pulling the ship in a completely different direction. And they'll probably attribute some of that to this. But then there's something else, you know, it was interesting to me uh, as I was sort of prepping for the episode, I noticed that there was some comments from uh, David Sandberg, the director, where he essentially came out and said, well, you know, uh, I'll, I kind of knew the movie was garbage from the get-go. I'm glad I got paid beforehand. <laughs> Which more or less says that there was, there was definitely a studio conflict. I mean, there was definitely something that the studio wanted, David didn't want to do. Now, of course, a couple of days ago, you know, he's doing cleanup on aisle five. He comes out and says, yeah, I loved making these movies. It was a great experience, but I need to step back from horror movie, uh, from superhero movies. And I'm going to go back and do my horror, you know, uh, horror is my bank game. That's where I want to go. So you can see there were a lot of behind the scenes problems with this movie too. But so it, I think it's a combination of failure and just a all parts like the mark I, I don't think the studio really understood the movie they had they misunderstood what the made the first one a success and then there obviously was conflict behind the scenes of which we obviously don't have any real exposure but you and i can speak to so there's probably something that was in either they were shooting it or the script wasn't done when they started shooting it <laughs> and there were sort of last minute changes or there was a disagreement over the screening results and what should be done to change them. And, but the bottom line is, you know, you have Warner Brothers Discovery now that is under pressure to cut costs. And that's been Zaslav's, you know, mantra from the minute he took over. Mm -hmm. And now you've got, this is a, this is a big, a big loss for them because $30 million is not a great opening. It did not do well overseas. So they're not making up any of their money there. Did not do well, I don't think, in China either, which is usually where most Hollywood studios look to make up any loss in the domestic side. And now you've got it, what, 100, well, they say, the estimates are 100, 
20 million, I think was the budget, not including PA. So you can imagine it's probably closer to 150 and with PA. Although I don't feel like they spent a lot of money on the media. It didn't feel like I felt like it was everywhere. But either way, it kind of lost its. I think they just lost their way on this one. Cause I remember when I saw the first trailer and it just didn't feel like they knew what they had. And you're right. That one scene where he's sitting there talking to Helen Murin, it's, she's not threatening. She looks like a grandma. Like it's, I understand they're like, Oh, we got Helen Murin. So it adds this sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, aura of respectability, right? If they maybe felt like the movie was sort of an also ran because you said, 50 million is not that great of an opening for a superhero film, especially when we're used to sort of the Marvel numbers. But still, um, I think it just, it's just a misfire on all angles. Now, I kind of want to, interestingly enough, because of everything that's happening sort of with Shazam, you also, there was news this past week of uh, Victoria Alonso, who's a longtime Marvel exec, departing. It was announced on like a Monday or Tuesday that she had left the previous Friday. There was no sort of like reason, no reason given why we don't, we don't know any of the, the reasons, but that's the first, I mean, her, Kevin Feige and, um, oh, what's his name? It's escaping me. Um, anyway, I'll figure it out. But, um, there's been like three of them running the company since the get, you know, basically since the, the get go. And now she's out. We have an obvious disappointment of Ant-Man and also the previous two films, which were not, didn't do as well. And then you have Eternals, which didn't, is obviously not been a, a success. And now we have Shazam and then also Black Adam. Let's not forget about Black Adam. So I feel like there's somewhat of a shift happening. Like, I don't know if it's necessarily that movie audiences, because you, let's be honest, we all would kill to have Marvel opening numbers. It's not like they're totally crap in the bed. but it's def there's definitely a shift in sort of the turn the the quality of the films has definitely started to struggle a little bit um what what do you in your mind what do you what do you think is behind this sort of does it, do you think it's a it's an overall sort of shift towards people are tired of it or do you line more with someone like a james gunn where you know during his the dc media day he's like listen Everyone's starting to feel like these comic books films look all the same. There's only so many things, only times you can tell the story of, you know, giant thing comes from the sky, superhero saves the day. Um, what do you, what do you think, what do you attribute sort of this, what feels like a shift in sort of the audience taste in terms of um, uh, uh, comic book movies? Well, a lot of things. So <clears throat> first I, I want to make a point that, Shazam isn't a comic book, just a normal comic book movie. It's not a superhero movie in the way that Justice League or any of those are a superhero movie. To me, it's a superhero movie, but with the same audience as Jumanji, it's okay if it opens to 50. That's actually a, a good number for that. However, yeah. um, especially when you look at who the audience, it's not a general audience movie. It's a family movie. Like the people, and when you looked at the exits of who paid attention and who loved it it was the same scores as jumanji three and a half stars for general audience and four for kids under 12 like it, it that's who it was it's not that's we knew that going in or at least i did i don't know how many people yeah. it that point. you knew it all along robin <laughs> well no i mean i don't want to look i'm sure that they've realized this throughout the you know throughout the campaign but so much of it it wasn't just that also like look at when 
the, the reason like Jumanji opened to the same numbers, but it opened around Christmas and it played and played and played. The release date for this was weird to me when you look at who the audience is. Like, actually, if you like that, I wouldn't doubt if they would have put this in the fall and found a way when you that that's why release dating is so important. You sit down and you Mm. plot all the things that are going to be coming out and who your competition is and where there are voids and where you can make the most money. I mean, Greatest Showman is a great example of a movie that that's not a marketing win. That was not a marketing win. They failed to open that movie. Uh-oh, ah, hold on, Uh-oh. hold on. Let me finish. Let me finish, please. <laughs> let, me, let me finish. The, okay. the middle of my sentence interrupted the beginning of yours. So one second. Excuse me. One minute. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our normal conversations in the, in the office when we used to work at Fox, guys. <laughs> let me finish. My point was greatest showman. The reason why it was successful, and I go back and look at the numbers of what it opened to and what it eventually made. It was a distribution Mm -hmm. win. That was a Chris Aaron's. That's absolutely like That was not a marketing win. It didn't open. They were selling it on Zac Efron and Zendaya. They thought that that's who the audience was for this younger crowd. But really, it was what people responded to was the this is me. They responded to the heart in the movie. They responded to the music. There were kids dancing in the aisles. They never saw that coming. They were trying to position it as a prestige Academy Awards film. They were wrong. Right. That ended up being a distribution win. That's what I'm saying. Is that, So that's one thing that I think Shazam was handled improperly, not just from marketing, but also distribution. There were, there were problems there, especially if the movie didn't deliver what they thought, then maybe that's something to pull back and find a way to release it on HBO Max, right? Like there are ways to save your money and the, the same production yeah. costs were the same as they were for Jumanji. I, like, and it delivered the same as Jumanji did, but it's going to get cut off. It's going to get underswiped because of what the release calendar looks like now. So there's a lot to look at that there. Now, as far as the superhero fatigue goes, um, they've been saying this for years. They were saying it after three superhero movies for Marvel, but they went on to do 17. Like, <laughs> like some of them now are at the top of the highest grossing movies of all time with Endgame and Infinity War. Mm-hmm. Like, I think what... DC is making a mistake of and what HBO is making a mistake of. And it's easy to do this is Marvel. They're looking at what Marvel is now. And they're being like, how can we get there? Instead of looking at what they are now and starting from the beginning, Marvel didn't know they hoped. I'm sure they had long-term visibility and franchise building, but at the time, what was most important for them was delivering a good film. Now Shazam can be like, I look at Shazam as Um, kind of like a Guardians of the Galaxy in the Marvel world. Like, it's completely different. It's completely standalone, but it's still Marvel. And that's great. And then they eventually found a way to tie it in, which was so smart. But it never was intended to originally be that way, right? Like, it's just great as it is. And I think they're not looking at that. They're They're trying so hard to find a way to marry these properties now in a way that doesn't feel organic and it doesn't work. And it's crushing their franchises instead of just trying to make a great movie that falls in DC. It may or may not ever be part of that timeline or be part of that world. And that's okay. Let it be right. And find the successful path for that film. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right there. There's definitely, it has been an ongoing conversation about the failure, you know, superhero fatigue. You're right. Pretty much after the third one, 
they were like, oh, people are just going to get sick of comic book heroes and blah, blah, blah. But the movies were always good, you know, no matter what. And, Mar- and that's where, and by the way, the third gentleman I was thinking of was Louis D. Esposito. Oh. Um, but it's sort of like, <sighs> they were always good. And they did such a great job of building a brand that you knew when you saw that Marvel logo. You knew you were going to, whether or not it was, a, I wouldn't say they were ever great movies, although Civil War was really great. Yeah. That was, not Civil War, Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier was a phenomenal movie. But it's like the way they were able to make them just feel like high quality films and you knew you were going to have a great time and it was all tied together. I just feel like now there's sort of been a shift and, th- you know, I've heard that, you know, again, granted, I haven't seen Ant-Man yet, but it's sort of like, I hear the villain's great. Jonathan Majors apparently does a really great job. So, you know, they've got a great villain, which is fantastic. It's a big part of making sort of propelling the story forward, but it feels like the quality may have started to suffer. And I think that is where they're, that is where I think the superhero fatigue really does play in because the quality is starting to suffer. And if that's the case, that's a problem. Like, because you don't, and I think that's where I, I side more with James Gunn, where he's like, listen, we can't keep doing the same movies over and over and over and over again. And I feel like that's kind of what Marvel is starting to do. Like, oh, here comes another super space alien who just wants to destroy the world. Now, whether or not there's inter- you know, intricacies to the story that we haven't been yet exposed to, that's entirely possible. Um, we could see where that goes. And, you know, again, no one's going to say, no one's going to turn down the opening kind of numbers that Marvel's been pulling down. There's no way anyone's going to say, oh, I only made a hundred million this weekend. (laughs) What a terrible opening. But at the same time, it's like, there is, I think, a quality issue that they really have to focus on. Now, the fact that they've started sort of, and Iger has shown up and has said, okay, hold on, we got to pump the brakes here. We're not going to do like the feed the beast fire hose of content just to pump up Disney plus. We can't do that anymore. Right. So we have to pull back and focus more on the quality. So maybe that will help. Perhaps that will move it in a more positive direction because now Kevin Feige and his team, instead of worrying about, you know, four movies and four shows on Disney plus, they can now start focusing on the films again and sort of fleshing out the story. And then if sort of a Disney plus sort of ep- show kind of fits into the sort of the, uh, sort of the overall storytelling, which you can kind of see that happening. Spoiler alert, apparently Owen Wilson and um, Loki make an appearance at the end of Ant-Man. I guess it's one of the post-credit sequences. So obviously there's going to be a tie in there, you know? So if the, if it makes sense from that perspective, then I could see it, working but i think they need to start focusing more on the quality not necessarily the quantity and then we'll see again you know they just announced that james gunn is going to do the next superman movie so that we'll see how that kind of shapes out but the other challenge is you know yes disney's going to pull back sort of and it's going to be more focused on quality versus quantity but then we have the news today or this week that we sort of have a better sense of the layoffs over at disney which um Bob Iger, I almost said Bob Chapik, whoops. Bob Iger (laughs) had announced um, at the previous earnings call, uh, they're going to cut about 7,000 jobs. And it apparently is going to affect 
every aspect of the company, not although I hear parks, not necessarily as much because parks got slammed during COVID and they're also the money cash maker of the company. So, um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that affects everything as well, because obviously you and I know having been through layoffs, having been laid off ourselves, it's, it's, it's a morale destroying (laughs) in a lot of ways experience. And it's, it, you know, coming off the fact, one, movies aren't doing as well as they were. There's quality questions. One of the, you know, people who have been there since the beginning in Victoria are now no longer a part of the company. And now you're facing layoffs. So it feels like there's going to be a lot of shifts and changes happening. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I looked at it first to, to finish the loop and come back to that, the fatigue and James Gunn. Yeah. I think there's there's one thing I wanted to say there is like a good story is a good story and people are going to find it and they're going to want to watch it and they're going to want to be part of it. And I think that's why, like, if you say fatigue, like Star Wars has been around since the 1970s and nobody's sick of it. There's no fatigue with Star Wars. Right. However, Mm. there aren't always hold on. There aren't always properties that are that are getting released that that drive the same numbers or that are as good or that can tarnish the brand or whatever that is. However, but you have to find ways to back up or to, to come back to where you were or to continue to make streams of revenue. Like, so I look at something like Clone Wars. Right. And there weren't movies for years, years. However, you couldn't walk into a Target or a Walmart without an entire aisle still being dedicated to Star Wars. That was mm. because of Clone Wars. Kids are right. coming there. Now, no one else was watching Clone Wars. It was a lost leader. It didn't make any money. But it drove revenue for consumer products and money. It was necessary. And so were all of the video games that continuing to bring in money for the franchise and for the brand of Lucas so that they can make the movies and continue to do things. Now, I think that's where Marvel and DC and all these other brands can really learn something from that, right? There's something Mm. to that. Not every property has to be perfect and not every property has to be for everyone. Clone Wars was teeny right. tiny, but it was so important in the world of Star Wars building, right? So yep. that alone is what I think Marvel and DC should be paying more attention to. And they need to be branching out in those ways that so that you can find where the low-hanging fruit is, that where people are going to respond. I mean, that's where the Mandalorian, they're able to do the Boba Fett and Mandalorian. And I forget the girl's character um, that Rosario Dawson plays that has read and has the two things that come out like that people. Oh, uh, uh, Ahoshka or something like that. I think that's what it is. Yes. They lost their minds with this person. And now she might have her own spinoff because of that, because of Clone Wars. So there's important things to listen to that. um, Again, it's just audience listening, right? So that's the first thing. Um, As far as the layoffs go, yeah, it's tragic and it's happening everywhere. It's every, there is no business that's not still being hit by COVID. We're we're feeling like we're going into a regression, like we're going to get hit. And it's, it's heartbreaking. And I feel for Bob Iger because the, you know, the company that he built is not the company that he inherited back when he came back. Right. It's a very different place now. Um, and COVID took a toll on it. So did Chapek in his own way. That was very different. And, um, you know, there's, uh, when you acquire a company is in the same way that he's inheriting back, I, I'm looking at it the same way as an acquisition. 
when mm. you when he's inheriting uh he's inheriting the disney back um but it's not the same company but he's also inheriting the culture from covid and the fear that people have in their jobs and and that's also a big part of like people aren't working to open movies not just at disney anywhere anywhere and everywhere right not working to they're not working to open movies anymore. They're working to keep their jobs. The jobs. Yeah. There's a big difference when you see that. That's a big difference in how people work. And so he's got a very, you know, I don't envy his position in trying to build back that culture, especially now that they have to go through layoffs and they have to figure out what to cut and where and how can you consolidate. And there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and, and he's going to have to look at Disney Plus, look at marketing. I mean, I think, again, you take a look at what the, theatrical releases are and um you make decisions of what goes to disney plus what doesn't and and there are more decisions on quality than there are on quantity um and then you've got hulu to look at as well so which yeah. I, I, what do you think about hulu what do you think hulu uh what do you think the role of hulu is at disney moving forward i that's i mean it's tough because i think we talked a little bit about this briefly uh, sean mcnulty in his wake-up newsletter had a headline saying basically saying Hulu represents 50% of Disney streaming. Now, I didn't read the article, so I don't have the exact analytics yeah. behind that. But if that's the actual case, then yeah, Hulu definitely needs to have a place at Disney. The issue is where, where does it fit into the overall scheme in terms of how Disney Plus is functioning versus Hulu? Now, the other thing is they, they I feel like they, they inherited an entire film studio in 20th century 20th Century Studios. I always have to catch myself now. 20th Century Studios, and they don't even use it other than just pumping movies that nobody watches into Hulu. And it's interesting to me, like they just, I think they just have to figure out how that all fits into the overall scheme. Now, whether or not Hulu now has like a separate block um, on the Disney Plus app or a second separate tile, I, it's difficult to figure out how that works because who I have Hulu Live. So I get my cable now through Hulu. And I think that's probably what a lot of people do. Um, and because you also get ESPN Plus and Disney Plus all in one package. And with YouTube live prices going up, you know, now it's sort of like the consumer is going to have to weigh, well, am I just getting YouTube? But look at all this I get with Disney. I get Disney Plus. I get ESPN Plus so I can watch all my sports if I want. And then I've got, you know, all the options of Hulu with all the channels that come with Hulu. So it's sort of like, I, it's a tough question. I don't think they want to get rid of it. Um, Iger himself has said that he's not, you know, they're, it's definitely a conversation. They're trying to figure out what to do with it. You know, do they, you know, Brian Roberts and Iger have sort of always been at loggerheads. So Roberts would love to force Iger to pay more <laughs> to buy out Comcast. So there's a lot of questions. I, I It's tough to figure out where it lies. But if that, as I said at the outset, if that is the accurate, it's 50%, then they've got to figure out how to make it work. Because if that's where a lot of their money is coming from, they can't afford to get rid of it. And the problem I think Hulu does face, though, is it's a lot of, so I think if it's a lot of Hulu Live because they don't really have a lot of originals that have sort of popped and have been big mm -hmm. hits. They've had some hit, you know, the Predator movie apparently did really well for Hulu. Um, so they've had some little blips here and there, but nothing like sort of 
like a, you know, a Mandalorian or anything like that, or anything that like Netflix releases every once in a while that sort of just becomes like a pop culture defining series. Yeah. Um, the other one, the one other thing I point out make is sort of about the Iger and Chapik of it all. I understand. I mean, I get why Chapik, Chapik made a lot of mistakes, but I honestly think he was feeding the fire hose and feeding the beast that Iger bequeathed to him. And I think Iger has admitted as much. He has said, listen, we saw those numbers after we released Hamilton and we're like, holy, sh-. like they got high in their own supply, basically. And the problem was nobody sort of stepped back and like, whoa, maybe this is just a one off because of COVID. Maybe we should just kind of pump the brakes a little bit. But the numbers were going like this, the subscriber numbers, and the stock price was going like this. So they're like, hey. It's a lovely day here in Disney World. So it's just like, let's just keep doing this. And then when it started to go like this, and the cost yeah. started kept going like this, that's, I think, when the reset happened. I think it, there was just a disconnect. I think people just really like Bob Iger. And I think there's the media likes him, which I think helps a lot. I don't think Chapik ever warmed himself to either the employees or the media for that matter, which I think as a CEO of one of the, the biggest entertainment company, you kind of have to do that. So, but yeah, I mean, I, it's a, it's a, it's a really tough question. I, I don't envy Iger at all. I mean, not only does he have to figure out all of this, figure out who's got it, who's going to go. He also has to figure out who's going to be the next CEO, <laughs> which yeah. he now is on a tipping time clock for that because he's got another year and change to figure out who the next person is. Cause this contract only two years. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think what you said there was really smart of they, when Bob Iger acquired 20th Century Fox. Um, I think he had very different intentions of what he would do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he left and Chapik did what he, you know, look, I don't envy Chapik either. He like, bless his heart. He came in and, and inherited a company in the middle of COVID. Like, what do you, you know, or he got hit with COVID like right after he got the job. It's like, yeah. what, you know, what do you do? That's not his fault. Um, and, um, and I think he did the best that he could do. There's a big difference in how he runs things and how Iger did. I think a reason why Iger is beloved is because Iger understood that what drove Disney and what still drives Disney today, and I agree with him on this, is the creative stories. It's all mm-hmm. about the, the creative. creatives. Yep. With without the creatives, without the creatives, without the stories, you have nothing. Even right. the parks, they don't exist without oh, those stories. Yep, yep. And so he he understood the role of creative, but also like how important the people are that make it, right? And so he understood the entertainment business that Chapik did not understand coming in. And I think that that's what hurt Chapik a lot with a lot mm-hmm. of people because they lost trust. I mean, we saw with the Scarlett Johansson deal, like there's, that's just one example, right? So- right. But I do, I do think that Chapik, I do think he made, uh, Chapik made a lot of good decisions. I think by sending things like Luca or Turning Red, like to um, streaming were the right things to do at the time, considering everything that was going on, right? Right. Um, so I do think that. I think also moving forward, Hulu provides an added value to Disney um, that none of their other, you know, that the brand of Disney like struggles with, which mm. is adult fare. Yeah. And they provide them with that. So I know there's a lot of talk about, do you offload it? But I don't think that you do. And I think that Bob Iger, to come back to what I said in the beginning, 
Um, you know, I think he had a plan for the 20th century Fox fair. I think that Hulu is part of that plan. Um, mm. I think there's, there's a way to do both. And also like, you're not going to offload sports when it brings in that much no. revenue. Like no. no one's not, yeah, no one's not watching ESPN. It's like <laughs> the most, it's the biggest brand in sports. You like, yeah. It would be crazy to get rid of that. Right. That's how I think they're able to survive in a lot of other ways, right? Yeah. So I think it's just about consolidating, but also figuring out um, what's the best way to roll these out to, you know, continue to bring in subscribers. I mean, look, they're gonna have um subscriber loss. Like now that you have the saturation of all of these other streamers. Like you're having to compete with them. Now, the thing that Disney has that nobody else has is, uh, you know, I'm a mom. I have two kids and kids stay little for a long time. Right? Yes. 10 years, like 10 years, at least 10 years. I'm going to have Disney. I'm going to be a subscriber of Disney. So I'm a long term subscriber because I've got kids. So that's a big audience So where they do need to come in and where they have the opportunity for growth is with people who aren't part of families. Now they have a lot of that, but all of those people who are subscribing now that don't have families are there for Lucas and there for Marvel, but they're not there for anything else yet. <clears throat> right. That is where I think Hulu comes in yeah. and provides that opportunity as well as a 20th century Fox fair. That's if I were Bob Iger, I would be looking at that. And I'm sure he already has and already did before he even acquired 20th century Fox. Yeah. I think it, it, it'll definitely be interesting to see what decisions he makes um, because they do have to make about $3 billion worth of spending cuts over the course of the next few years. So it's going to be some tough decisions coming forward. It'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Well, Robin, thank you very much for filling in for Tim, who uh, for our regular viewers is traveling today, but he will return next week. Um, so thanks for coming by and um, hosting the show with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I was back so soon. I know. So quick, so fast. It's unbelievable. <laughs> all right. Take care. Robin. Thanks again. Bye.